Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Scott Lincecum, the Director of General Economics and Trade at the Cato Institute, a visiting lecturer at Duke University, and author of the must-read newsletter, Capitalism, for The Dispatch. He's also the editor of an important new book, Empowering the American Worker, Market-Based Solutions for Today's Workforce, which is already generating considerable discussion and debate in U.S. public policy circles. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including its case that growing calls to abandon markets in the name of worker interests are ultimately wrongheaded. Scott, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you, and thanks for having me. At its core, the book challenges the basic contention of some voices, including on the right, that a series of policy choices about trade, markets, and globalization have produced poor outcomes for a critical number of American workers and workers in advanced economies more generally. In the introduction, for instance, you make the case that claims about middle class stagnation are overstated, and in any case, that addressing concerns about the middle class ought not to start from the assumption that market forces are incompatible with their interests. Let's start big picture. Why do you think these perceptions have taken shape in the world of policy and politics? Well, I mean, leaving, I think, aside the reality of uh, people tend to gravitate towards bad news, unfortunately. You know, uh, you don't see on the news ever that uh, another plane landed successfully at LaGuardia, right? Uh, and I think when leaving the kind of general pessimistic bias aside, um, I think there is a nugget of truth in the populist left and right critique of the current situation for American workers. Uh, the reality is that uh, we do live in incredibly disruptive times, um, whether it is due to technology or trade or COVID-19 or whatever. Um, there is a lot of turbulence. And at the same time, there are uh, some discrete problems with uh, certain segments of the workforce, at certain regions of the country. Um, I think a little of the you know Rust Belt nostalgia stuff is overblown here in the United States, but there's no doubt that whether it's in the Rust Belt or elsewhere in the United States, uh, there are some communities, some regions that are struggling. So when you take that and then you combine that with the fact, uh, cynically or otherwise, that a lot of those people and a lot of those areas are located in very important swing states in the United States, um, whether it's, you know, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania or elsewhere throughout the United States. Um, 
that is going to draw even more attention to these issues. And, and so those, I think those nuggets of truth, um, uh, do tend to drown out, as I wrote about in the introduction, that um, we really need to first start out with the fact that the, the general story of the last 30 or 40 years for the median American worker is pretty decent. Um, yes, there are challenges, whether it's with rising health care costs or higher education or the rest. But in general, median inflation adjusted wages are going up and and they are have gone up substantially since the uh, hyper globalization days of the 1990s um, that uh, people have found jobs outside of manufacturing. Yes, manufacturing jobs have generally declined, but they've been declining since basically the 1990s. 50s. Uh, but individuals have found jobs outside of manufacturing, good paying jobs and so forth. And, and that while manufacturing is fine, it's, it's, it's a, a good industry, whatever. Um, the obsession we have over trade manufacturing is, is overblown. Um, but, uh, there, there are issues in the workforce, like I said, with discrete populations and regions, but also with little things, uh, not little things, but important things like economic dynamism. Um, you know, over before the pandemic, at least, um, we saw that workers weren't changing jobs as frequently. Um, that's actually, I think, a bit of a surprise, maybe, that um, individuals, we thought, you know, oh, the, you know, we used to have jobs for 50 years and now we're not. It's actually the opposite. Uh, people were staying put in jobs or um, not moving to a new place. So geographic mobility was declining. Um, there are some issues with just income mobility and wealth mobility as well. So people uh, kind of by generationally moving up the income ladder. Um, and there we've seen things, um, some, some problems with business formation. Uh, so business uh, entrepreneurship. And rest. So, so there are these kind of discrete issues. And like I said at the beginning, um, we, we do face certain essential goods and services, uh, particularly healthcare and higher education, uh, childcare have seen pretty dramatic uh, price increases. So, so those things are all real. Uh, and that's again, what the book then tries to go after, right? Let's, let's look at what's causing those things. Uh, is it a failure of the free market? Do we have these pervasive market failures in all these areas? Um, or is it something else? And what, how can we um, help the vast majority of the American workforce um, have better and fuller lives and better jobs and the rest of that? That's a comprehensive answer, Scott. And I, I do want to pursue some of the lines of analysis that you outlined, in, including with respect to mobility and business formation and so on. But before we get there, I just want to pick up your point about some of the nuggets embedded in the diagnosis that we're seeing from some of these different voices, if not their specific solutions. Take, for instance, the so-called China shock, which refers to the impact of Chinese import penetration on American industry and, and American workers. In hindsight, were there mistakes in the way that the American strategy of engagement with China was carried out as it relates to the interest of the working class? Yeah, you know, I don't think so. Let's actually, I think it's best we can start a little bit with what the China shock was. And I think where we can Basically, everybody can agree that throughout the late 1990s and then through the first decade of the 2000s, so for about a 15-year period, there was a pretty substantial increase in Chinese imports into the United States, uh, a trend that was already accelerating but uh, was 
further accelerated by China's entry into the World Trade Organization uh, and the United States granting what we call permanent normal trade relations to China that that lowered certain trade barriers, or at least uh, locked in certain lower trade barriers. Uh, the general view is that that resulted in uh, a at least temporary job loss for certain workers and regions uh, to the tune of uh, about a million manufacturing jobs and then about a million non-manufacturing jobs. So, oh, again, over a 15-year period or so. So um, I, I think that uh, the general approach to China in the 1990s and 2000s was actually about the best we could plausibly hope for. Uh, the reality, and I've, I've written a paper on the China shock. I recommend anybody go Google it and read. But as I argue there, that there are um, a lot of myths about how much negotiating leverage the United States really had when it came to China's entry into the World Trade Organization and its participation in the global economy. Uh, we were not just simply able, we did not have some sort of magical veto that was going to keep China out of the WTO, keep China isolated. Uh, really, the United States was left with a very pragmatic choice in the 1990s, and that was uh accept China's entry, which every other country in the world had agreed to, um, or be the lone dissenter and thus lose out on any benefits that China's WTO membership would give the United States. So, for example, you couldn't bring disputes in the WTO's dispute settlement system, which actually turned out to be pretty effective later on. Not perfect, but, but pretty effective. Uh, meanwhile, U.S. big U.S. exporters, whether they're farmers or Boeing, were going to lose a chance to enter China's market, which was growing and, of course, huge. And they were going to lose that to, you know, their European competitors or their Latin American competitors for agriculture. So um, and, and finally, the United States was going to lose the ability to use kind of soft power to potentially encourage reforms in China or simply, you know, there is studies show that, that countries that trade together tend not to go to war with each other. So maybe have some diplomatic and geopolitical benefits, too. So uh, that was really the choice that we had. Um, and really, there, there wasn't a, a better alternative. Had the United States stayed out, the fact is that Chinese imports would probably have still continued to increase into the United States because most of China's export competitiveness came, and this is, sorry, this is kind of wonky, but it's pretty important. Most of China's uh, export competitiveness didn't come from the United States flipping a switch with PNTR and WTO. It actually came from all of these internal economic reforms that China had committed to in the 1990s uh, and 1980s. So granting property rights, uh, lowering their own tariff barriers, uh, reforming their legal system and the rest uh, to, to kind of move from a real communist country to this kind of hybrid capitalist communist, uh, you know, or state capitalist model, right? So studies show even by the China shock guys that uh, uh, more than two-thirds of China's export power came from those internal reforms. Nothing the United States could have done. The United States had been granting China annual normal trade relations since the 1980s. We didn't even deny it uh, when the Tiananmen Square uh, uh, protests happened. So there was very little chance of, of that, of rejecting the normal trade relations. Uh, so at the end of the end, 
to be really wonky. Uh, Chinese inputs were still going to be able to enter the United States as finished goods from other places, because that's how good old U.S. customs law works. So, for example, you could take Chinese steel, you could process it in Mexico, and it's going to come in as a Mexican product. So, again, the, the reality is that there wasn't this grand alternative that was going to keep China small and weak, that was going to somehow promote democracy in China. You know, we hear that a lot, right? All these foolish free traders thought they could get the communists to turn democratic. And look, there was some rhetoric like that. But uh, it's not like the alternative was going to be some magic bullet either. Uh, the alternative was probably very likely going to be be worse. So, so when you take that counterfactual, then I think it's it's pretty obvious that that they made the best choice available. And then I think the other thing to really know, uh, and then sorry, we can go on, is that um, the job loss totals you hear about two million jobs that sounds like a lot. But again, that was spread over 15 years. It was offset by a lot of job uh, gains in export-related industries, so companies that exported to China, or in the same companies that lost some manufacturing jobs, gained jobs in services as comparative advantage did its thing. Um, and importantly, I think most importantly, really were a tiny fraction of the total job churn that the U.S. economy generates at, in over that 15-year period. The fact is that in a single month in a normal, healthy U.S. economy, we destroy about 5 million jobs in a single month. So uh, a 2 million job churn over a 15-year period really... Uh, it's important to those people, of course, humans, that, that's, you know, your own job matters. But as a matter of national and global economic policy, that context is essential as, as well. And that doesn't even mention all the consumer benefits that we got from having tons of cheap stuff, um, you know, because that's uh, a, a benefit too, right? And those, those uh, gains have been found to be quite significant, you know, hundreds of dollars a year for the average family for the rest of their lives uh, based on on trade liberalization with China. So all the bad stuff aside, certainly there were things. Certainly China's regime has has engaged in a lot of backsliding since the two since 2000. Uh, there are plenty of problems on human rights and foreign policy. But the idea that this was some terrible decision that has fueled the rise of Chinese autocracy and could have been avoided easily by flipping a policy switch is, I think, pretty nonsensical. Again, a, a comprehensive answer, Scott, and, and you need not apologize for being wonky on this podcast. Let me apologize to you, though, for kind of indulging some of these big picture questions. I just have so much respect for your thinking on these subjects. I can't give up the opportunity to put them to you, but I promise we will get to the book and some of the specific policy areas that you tackle. But if I can put another contextual question to you, in broad terms over this period of globalization, we've seen a significant convergence in terms of global inequality, but some divergence in income inequality within Western countries. Do you agree with that characterization? And if so, do you have a sense of the extent to which it's a function of policy choices versus some of the broader economic and technological forces that you've just described. In other words, was this outcome inevitable? Yeah, um, I think for the most part, it was inevitable. 
you know, there is a, we, we, when we talk about uh, the hyper globalization period, when we talk about this period of rising inequality in the say 19 from 19, basically 1980s on, um, it is always essential to note how freakishly unique the 1950s and 60s were for the U.S. economy and for economies like in Canada and elsewhere that were kind of tied to the U.S. economy. In the sense of after World War II, you had uh, about half the world uh, was destroyed from World War. Uh, then you had another, what, a third or 40 percent of the world was uh punching itself in the face by embracing communism. And then you had the United States and a few other places that uh, were essentially the manufacturer for the world um, and the, the world's workforce, the world's breadbasket. And, and that period was truly unique. And so a lot of what we saw after countries wisely abandoned communism, after Europe rebuilt itself, um, after um, you know there was some reform in, in uh, outside of uh, you know the big ones like China and India, but but in Latin America and elsewhere, um, you know a lot of this was I think reversion to the mean in some ways, right? Uh, that and um, to the extent globalization was occurring, it's important to remember that. A lot of globalization had nothing to do with policy. You know, surely the World Trade Organization and trade agreements and tariff and, and trade policy mattered, but so did simple things like the creation of containerized shipping, uh, which was a massive technological uh, improvement in, in the 1950s and 1960s. And then the information technology revolution which allowed global manufacturers like Apple to track their supply chains in almost real time. Um, the, and when you combine a lot of those technological improvements with, again, that global reversion to mean, um, policy certainly played a role. But I think the vast majority of it is this type of inevitable outcome. Uh, but the other thing I would note that's really important is that you, we always have to, when we talk about these big arcs of history, it's always essential to keep updating our priors because so Bronco Milanovich, you know, who who talked about the whole, you know, the elephant chart with global inequality has just published new research showing that um, a lot of the issues with developed world inequality have actually disappeared or have moderated in the last few years. Uh, the United States also has gained like 2 million manufacturing jobs since 2010. So some of the, and I should note, the Congressional Budget Office just released its latest look at, at U.S. inequality showing that inequality has been relatively stable now for going on like 25 years or so. And that goes with some of the wage gains I mentioned before. You know, um, I, I've written about this before in my newsletter. Uh, the timing of the whole anti-globalization and inequality and wage stagnation stuff doesn't really line up. Because if you look at it, most of the inequality it and and wage stagnation actually occurred before NAFTA, before the WTO. So it was in the like late 70s and 1980s. When we actually got into these agreements, when there was all this hyper-globalization, 
actually we started seeing inequality moderate. We started seeing wage gains improve. Now, I'm not going to be uh, some sort of cheerleader and say that that's a causal thing, right? But there is a temporal problem, a basic temporal problem where the, the, the complaints don't align with the policy. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. As you mentioned earlier, Scott, the book cites a decline in labor mobility, that is the share of workers who are prepared to move jobs or even move places for work, and attributes it to a market failure, including stringent land use regulations, which have driven up the cost of housing in dynamic job creating places. I'm sympathetic to the argument, but a case from conservatives would be that that line of argument undervalues the sense of place and belonging that people ascribe to where they live. So just because particular communities have experienced deindustrialization and job losses, they don't want to follow market signals to relocate. What, if any, policymaking onus do we collectively have to those people? Is there a role for place-based policy, which may involve distortions, to try to push the market to create economic opportunities in those distressed communities? Or is it your view that these people are free to choose to stay, but that we don't have a policy responsibility to them? Yeah, I'm, I'm far more in the latter category, at least when it comes to federal policy. Because I think the and I've written uh, I wrote a, a long piece about this. Um, uh, most of the places that were hit hard by these big disruptions have moved on and have uh, evolved and are now thriving. Um, you know, the Brookings Institution had a, a, a report a few years ago looking at declining industrial cities. So exactly what you think about when we talk about you know. Trumpism and the Rust Belt and all that. Um, this is this is the report, and they found that in the vast majority of these places, uh, a place like Pittsburgh or whatever, um, that were industrial towns in the 1970s, uh, have moved on, and now they're either doing okay or they're thriving. It's only a handful of places that are still really struggling. Now, that, I think, is a really strong indicator that the problem is less about, because all these places were all hit by the same stuff. And I'll give you a, a direct example in just a sec. But I think that because the others moved on and evolved, it's, I think, a strong indicator that the problem isn't federal policy or international economic policy or anything like that. It's state and local policy primarily, right? This is this is about places, some places did the right things, some towns did the right things to get their acts together, and others didn't. Now, for the ones that didn't, I do think that it is essential that uh, foot voting occur, that these places be punished for their bad decisions. So I now will give you an, an example. So uh, Youngstown, Ohio is a classic case. It is the poster child 
for industrial decline in the United States. Every presidential candidate for the last something like 40 years has gone to Youngstown and promised to bring back Youngstown steel and the revive the rust belt, the industrial might of the United States economy. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Um, meanwhile, uh, Greenville, South Carolina was a big textile town. Uh, Greenville was hit by the exact same shocks in terms of trade and globalization and technological change. Um, instead of steel, it was textiles. Greenville um, was had the almost identical population as Youngstown in, in the 1970s when all this was going on. The difference was, or one of the differences, was that Greenville looked around and said, we can't be a textile town. We need to embrace uh, foreign direct investment. We need to embrace services. We need to uh, adopt better policies at the state level as well, the government of South Carolina as well. Uh, and we need to be something other than a textile town or we're going to die. Um, they did all these things. Greenville is now the home to BMW. It's the home to Michelin. It's got a thriving uh, financial services sector. It's voted one of the best places to live. Its population has grown dramatically over the last 30 plus years. Youngstown did none of this. Youngstown today is still talking about reviving the old Youngstown steel plant. Uh, they are still trying to embrace this kind of nostalgic view of the U.S. economy. Uh, they are the recipient of more federal aid than like almost any town in the United States. And they're, and they've slowly but surely lost population and they are you know, the, the place that we, we read about in the newspaper all the time. And so I think that that's a really good example of a place that, that did adopt better policies at the state and at the local level, that did embrace change and has thrived. Uh, in a place that did the exact opposite, uh, Ohio uh, did not have great state policy for a long period. They're doing better now. Um, but, uh, and, and thus its, its population has declined. And I think, quite frankly, I, I think it's perfectly fine for the residents of Youngstown after 40 years of futility to say to heck with this, I'm out. Right. Uh, and I don't and I don't think that the federal government, I think the federal government has a role in the sense of maintaining a, you know, a vibrant economy, a, a you know, st stable monetary policy and tax policy and all that. But directing specific aid to specific places, I think, tries to paper over the failures of state and local economies, state and local leaders and the rest. Uh, and it's it doesn't strike me as as necessary in in any any way. Um and then on the last point, I think that's critical, is that as we talk about in the book, there are a laundry list of state and local policies that could be adopted to help these places. And it's not merely about abandoning them, right? I'm not only about lowering that cost of housing in New York City or whatever so that people can move to New York City. Um, there are a lot of other policies, whether it is occupational licensing or welfare policy or uh, child care policy, I mean, home-based business reforms, other zoning deregulation. There are a ton of things that state, local, and federal policymakers could be doing to make it easier to work and live in these places, not merely easier to abandon them. And I think that that's, you know, where there are failures, it's not market failures as much as it is, you know, government failures. You mentioned the negative effects of a nostalgic perspective in forming public policy. Let me take up that point because it's a major critique laid out in the introduction uh, to the book. 
in particular, you make the case, Scott, that a lot of working class discourse has a poorly conceived understanding of who the working class actually is. That is to say, they're no longer principally in the goods producing economy. They're oftentimes more female than male. And the list goes on and on. Do you want to talk a bit about who comprises the working class and what the implications are for working class policy agenda? Yeah, and I, you're, you're right that I, the, a big focus of the book is to expand the definition of working class because so much of Washington policy is directed towards uh, stereotypes of the American worker that are uh, just not backed by the data. You know, we talk about manufacturing jobs. Well, yeah, you know, that's about 9% of the entire workforce is in manufacturing, even after the, the millions of jobs we've gained since 2010. Um, you look at, uh, so, so the vast majority of us work in services. Um, another big point is a lot of our job growth and a lot of our jobs are globalized. You know, we talked about trade being a bad thing. Well, trade is actually a very good thing for a lot of jobs, whether it's working in an Amazon warehouse or uh, driving a truck or um, you name it. There are um, there's a great study that showed that a, more than half of our job growth since 2010 has been in goods trader companies. So companies that are some way related to global trade. So we're we're not real manufacturing jobs. We are more globalized. We are working in services. Like you said, um, a lot of uh, breadwinner families are now uh, headed by women. Uh, you know, a lot of stable uh, families have a, a female breadwinner. Um, the, the dad might work too or whatever, but that's, uh, I think, a big difference. Um, we also increasingly value, particularly since the pandemic, we increasingly value flexibility and independence over <clears throat> um, job protection. Um, their studies showed that, for example, for remote work, uh, people are willing to take pay cuts to be able to work remotely. Um, they, uh, they increasingly cite uh, flexibility and autonomy over uh, basic wages, right? Um, and so, and then finally, uh, the studies show, and I think there's a chapter on employee benefits that really hits this. People are just diverse, right? We have a lot of different wants and desires from our job, from our lives, and federal policy doesn't really think about these things. You know, it's like, okay, we're going to give paid family leave now. Well, there are a lot of people who might not want paid family leave, or we're going to demand that employers provide health insurance. Well, a lot of people don't want their employer to provide health insurance. They don't like the health insurance their employer is providing, right? Um, and you can go on and on through the list where um, federal policy just kind of assumes everybody is a in this cookie cutter model of um, a, a worker drone, and that's what we need to do for uh, labor policy is whether it's via, like I said, mandated benefits or trade protectionism or whatever. Um, and it just doesn't really fit the, the reality of, of today's workforce. The book cites a number of policy areas, including many that you've, you've mentioned through our conversation, housing, health care, child care, etc. Given the state of American politics, are there ones that you see signs of potential progress. Are there bipartisan solutions or at least bipartisan opportunities on some of these issues to produce policy reform? Fortunately, I do see a few areas where, and especially at the state level, we're already seeing. 
Uh, a big one is occupational licensing. Um, you know, the uh, unfortunately, uh, the occupational licensing in the United States, so essentially requiring a license to, to, to uh, engage in a certain profession, uh, has exploded in the last 30 plus years, um, going from about 5% of all jobs to anywhere between 25 and 30% of all jobs now requiring a license. Um, it is not only costly to obtain a license and, and maintain your license, but it also does all sorts of things in terms of restricting mobility between jobs, between places. Uh, it, of course, imposes big costs for consumers, uh, and it doesn't even improve the quality of the services it, for the most part. So occupational licensing outside of a few professions that all states can agree on, uh, like doctors, for example, uh, is, is pretty bad stuff. Fortunately, um, a lot of states are starting to revisit their occupational licensing regimes and in undertaking uh, good reforms. And, and that's on the right and on the left. So Colorado, which is pretty blue these days, Arizona, pretty red these days, Florida, definitely red these days, um, have all started to look at this. Um, we've also seen the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration all come out um, in opposition to certain onerous occupational licensing systems. So I think licensing is a good area where we're seeing some some movement. Um, another area uh, is criminal justice. Now, you, people might be like, well, how does criminal justice affect the labor market, right? Well, it turns out that having, first of all, we've seen an explosion in the United States of people with a, a criminal record. Um, now, tens of millions of Americans are walking around with some type of criminal record, um, not a, not merely a felony conviction, but like an arrest record or whatever. And research shows that that depresses labor participation, whether it's due to stigma or whatever. Um, well, States are finally realizing that, um, you know, having a 20 year old pot conviction is a pretty uh, meaningless thing and yet is affecting the labor market and keeping people out of the labor market or harming their job prospects. So places like Pennsylvania have embraced automatic expungement to uh, essentially clear people's record automatically after a few years of uh, good behavior, right? You don't commit a crime, you don't get arrested, um, that's it. Or they have automatic expungement, go back to a place like Colorado, for crimes that are no longer crimes, right? Colorado legalized marijuana possession. Uh, well, you shouldn't be able to have to deal with a conviction for marijuana possession if it's now legal, and sports gambling is another area. And we've seen a bipartisan movement at the federal level to do some similar stuff there. So um, I think that's another potential area. And then finally, um, I think housing deregulation is finally getting uh, some bipartisan support as well. Uh, again, you go from Obama to Trump to Biden, you're seeing uh, HUD and other agencies um, starting to look at the cost of zoning, not merely for the price of housing, but for worker mobility and other important parts of the economy. Um, and you're seeing movements at uh, in blue states and red states that are, are looking at this. Now, I, I would be um, lying if I said that this is uh, an easy thing, right? Because uh, housing deregulation and housing development uh, generates massive opposition from incumbent uh, homeowners, uh, what we call NIMBYs. And NIMBYs, unfortunately, are uh, very powerful uh, 
I will I will say I think they're mostly well intentioned, but they're very misguided. Um, but because they have such powerful interests and voted and votes, um, they they can they can push back on a lot of these reforms. So I don't think it's going to be easy. But again, uh, you know, that's another area where red team and blue team both seem to agree that we need to do something, and they've targeted the right policies. Because you know, one of the problems is. Uh, red team and blue team a lot of times will agree on stuff, but at least from a libertarian perspective, they're agreeing on the terrible policy response, right? Uh, at least in these areas, they seem to have also targeted the right policy. Let me put a penultimate question to you. You're optimistic in your chapters in the book that there are growing market conditions for better outcomes for workers, namely the potential for remote work, as well as the broader trend of a slowing labor supply, which ought to grant greater bargaining power to workers. Are we seeing signs, Scott, that workers are leveraging these conditions for better work outcomes? And what should we be looking for to see if the theory plays itself out in practice? Yeah, you know, um, the pandemic has, uh, for better or worse, been a really fascinating experiment in uh, jolting uh, labor dynamism, so getting people to move jobs or move places or whatever, and um, and in increase worker bargaining power. And it does appear um, that people are taking advantage. You know, I mentioned that we had had this decades-long decline in economic dynamism. Well, suddenly the pandemic hits, and now you saw an explosion in business formation. And it appears to have stuck. It does not. It was not merely people side hustling for a few months while their their waiter job, their bartender job was was made. You know, it was uh, illegal for a bit, right? It's not you know because restaurants were closed. So, um, increase in entrepreneurship appears to have stuck. Remote work has definitely stuck. Um, you know, we are now at the point where. 30% give or take of all working days are performed remotely. And that's, again, been pretty stable. Um, and so individuals appear to really like remote work. Um, and uh, they they appear to be exerting, again, some, some power uh, and pushing back because employers, uh, for whatever reasons, a lot of employers don't like remote work. Now, I think they're mostly misguided, but not entirely, but it doesn't matter. The workers seem to be getting their way on remote work right now. And then finally, simply with job change and wages, uh, the numbers here are really incredible. Um, wage growth among job switchers is, um, it's like almost at 10%, which is massive for, for, um, you know, like a, a short period of time. Um, and, uh, that again is reflecting a very tight labor market and what we're, individuals' willingness to, to jump ship and try something different. I think that's, again, kind of because the, the labor situation is so tight right now. Um, and then the last thing I think is really fascinating, something to keep an eye on, is independent work, so independent contracting. So there's brand new data out uh, just a few weeks ago from um, a consulting firm called MBO Partners that said that now um, something like 60 million Americans are engaged in some form of independent work. Uh, that's like more than a third of the labor force is either working independently full-time or part-time. Uh, that's an incredible increase. It's about double what it was uh, pre-pandemic. And I think it indicates, again, that, that people are feeling pretty confident about uh, going out on their own and not because they have to. You know, the, the complaint against gig work 
in the say 2015 was that people didn't have any choice. You know, the labor market stunk and there were no jobs for people had to go drive an Uber. Uh, that's most definitely not the case now. Even after several rounds of Fed tightening, we have like 800,000 manufacturing job openings in the United States right now. If you want a manufacturing job uh, and you're you're not um, you know barred from it for physical reasons or whatever, you can you can go into manufacturing. People don't really want to do that. Um, increasingly, they want services jobs, independent jobs, and these t- other types of of careers. Um, and that I think again is a reflection of this uh, of this hot labor market. And it's also again a reflection of um, why labor policy really needs to focus on maximizing autonomy and flexibility and adaptation, because the trends of a few years ago are not going to be the trends in a few years. And, you know, a few years ago, we thought everybody was moving to New York and San Francisco. Now those places are struggling to find commercial tenants. Um, we thought that everybody wanted a nine to five job with health insurance or whatever. Again, now we're seeing this explosion in independent work. So, so policy needs to be better about figuring out what's the, how do we, how do we hedge our bets, right? And the way to do that is to have benefits follow workers. Shouldn't be tied to your job. Have, um, a policy, a regulatory policy that allows people to move from job to job or place to place. Uh, doesn't necessarily, um, promote remote work, but doesn't discriminate against it, so forth and so on. And that's really what the book is about, trying to really maximize individual worker autonomy, um, not one-size-fits-all uh, one view of, of, of worker po- labor policy, education policy, whatever. It's a great answer. Let me end with a political economy question. It seems to me, Scott, one disadvantage that you and your collaborators on this project may face in the political arena is the political economy issue of, on one side, an active, visible, interventionist set of policy prescriptions. And on the other hand, your policy prescriptions, which oftentimes involve policymakers actually retrenching or withdrawing from the marketplace, as opposed to actively intervening. Do you want to talk a bit about that challenge and how you and your colleagues think about overcoming it? Right. So, and I'll add to you, the political economy problem is even worse than you just described because uh, whenever you withdraw, you're inevitably going to harm someone that was benefiting from the previous policy status quo. No matter how bad that status quo was, I mean, think of occupational licensing, right? Certainly, there are licensed florists. Yes, we license florent florists in certain states uh, that are going to be harmed, so to speak, from new competition if you if you unregulated uh, florists, heaven forbid, right, that you could get a flower arrangement from somebody who wasn't licensed by the state. Uh, so that's, I think, an, an additional political economy problem. So it is very difficult. Um, and like you said, there is the inevitable issue of looking like doing nothing versus doing something right? Uh, giving people money, banning stuff, that's an active uh, government, uh, that's government action, and, and of course that sells. So I think the way that it has to be overcome is as a package deal. Um, and that's why the book is packaged the way it's packaged. Um, you know, I come from a world talking about trade policy as if my China shock answer didn't give that away. Um, and I, and I kind of hated being just a trade guy, because 
trade isn't just about trade, right? It's about labor policy and tax policy and regulatory policy and the rest. And so the we have to start thinking about policy as packages of policies to attack things that people really care about. So people really care about housing. Well, you, we need to not just attack that from, well, we have a lot of tariffs on construction materials. We need to talk about zoning. We need to talk about uh, federal ownership of federal lands and the rest. And that those policies need to be put together in coherent packages. Uh, this is my housing plan. And then that way, I think that offsets um, some of your special interest issues and offsets some of the uh, doing nothing issues. This is my plan for housing. And it's a a litany of things rather than just, I'm going to, you know, not, not do it. I'm going to, I'll, I'll do nothing. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Scott Lincecum, Director of General Economics and Trade at the Cato Institute, among other affiliations about the important book, Empowering the American Worker, Market-Based Solutions for Today's Workforce. Scott, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.